Did you know that we actually have two podcast shows? The other one is called The Cattle Station Classroom. And as you can guess from the name, it's educational. Don't let that turn you off though. These episodes are short, sweet, and a bit of fun. We recently launched a sub-series on the podcast called Station Sticky Beak, and I'm sharing this episode today so you can get a taste of what it's about. If you enjoy listening, be sure to find the Cattle Station Classroom and subscribe. Listening to the Cattle Station Classroom Podcast, where we learn about the North Australian beef industry and answer your questions. So it doesn't matter how far from town you are, because we're bringing the classroom to you. Welcome back to the Cattle Station Classroom Podcast. This episode is the first in a new sub-series we are launching called Station Sticky Beak, because it is exactly that, a sticky beak. No two cattle stations are the same, and as such, neither are management strategies. I wanted to create this series to share an insight into why pastoralists do what they do, given their circumstances, whether it be location, country type, rainfall zone, infrastructure, ownership model, market, or any of the many other factors influencing management decisions. In each Station Sticky Beak episode, I'll chat to station owners and managers about a range of topics, broadly covering country, infrastructure, cattle, and people. Now, as this was the first episode, I didn't really realise until partway through that the order of topics I'd planned for didn't really make sense, so we did a bit of a shuffle. The purpose of this sub-series is not to demonstrate the best or only way of doing things. It's quite the opposite, to share the who, what, where, when and why of different pastoral enterprises around the country and show that there are many ways to achieve positive outcomes for people, livestock, the land and business. For our first episode, I sat down with Cole Greenfield from Billa Cleaner Station in South Australia. My name's Cole Greenfield and um, I'm part of Billicolina Pastoral Company. We own three pastoral leases in northern South Australia, Billicolina, Millers Creek and Panati, based between Coobapiti and Port Augusta. What kind of enterprises do you run on your pastoral leases? So we're in a fairly unique position. We've got the dog fence as our boundary between two of our leases. So we run all cattle outside dog fence and then our other two leases run a mixture of cattle and sheep depending on season and prices. What are we talking of in terms of scale? All up it's about 9,000 square kilometres between the three leases. And what's your average rainfall? Average here at Billicolina is about 140 mils and down at our bottom place Panati is about 170. So not much rain at all? Hardly any rain and absolutely no season so can rain any month and doesn't have to rain at any month. Yeah, that sounds like Mother Nature. It doesn't have to rain at all. And what market are you aiming for? So we're mainly looking at um, at animals that can fit, a, fit the domestic or export market um, that can finish quickly and that we can sell at a range of ages. So if we're having a dry year, we can sell them as, as weaners or stores and then if we're having a run of good seasons, we can carry them through to heavy organic kill cattle. All right, so that takes us into our first section of the station sticky beak, which is livestock. So what, you know, normally I would ask people what breed they're running, but you actually have different species that you're running as well. So let's talk about species and then breeds within that. Yeah, sure. So on the cattle side of it, we run predominantly shorthorn. Um, we've got a, a shorthorn market uh, called a thousand guineas um, that supplies high end, high quality beef to the restaurant trade uh, throughout Australia. And also, Obviously, we're organics, US organics, so we, we also target the US market as well as um, a range of local markets. And then with our sheep, we run uh, white dorper sheep, so they're a shedding breed, and we predominantly target the um, local domestic um, trade with those. 
This thousand guineas that the Shorthorn is it like the Shorthorn Society or yes. Association? Yeah, that Society. So it's, is that essentially them trying to do what Angus have done many moons ago? You know, kind of everyone. And you, know, you haven't really seen it being emulated with other breeds. No, that's very right. Much yet, it's so. it's purely a marketing exercise, and it's um, it's probably its biggest drawback at the moment is finding enough cattle to to fit the um, to fit the specs. Um, yeah, there's a lot of demand for it for the product. It's going really well. So, so yeah, it's purely market driven. I find that really great, just because I think most of the time in this industry, when we hear about short horns, it's you know like your Kimberley short horn, your feral cattle from many moons ago, and not many people think about the fact that there are great commercial herds of high quality cattle running out there. And you did say before that you are targeting both the domestic and export market. Is that in um, like? chilled beef or is that live as well no, no pre- predominantly chilled or frozen so yeah we don't do very rarely do any live there's occasional boat comes to adelaide but it's certainly too unreliable to, to rely on it so your cattle and sheep are they going down to adelaide for like for actually let's start off with the sheep actually so do they just go down through somewhere sorry down south or within sa for slaughter or do they go interstate do they go to do other people buy them as breeders what are they used for yeah so generally we with our uh, dorpers the highest price point is selling them as lambs before they cut their two teeth and turn into a hogger so we've got a southern property um between port Perry and adelaide um that we um use as a depot so most of them go there and then um, we've got an alliance with a with a local meat wholesaler who supplies restaurants and meat trade supermarkets throughout South Australia and a few other states. So um, he does a service kill in South Australia, so they go there. And um, the cattle quite often go to Victoria or New South Wales, um, especially since one of our main meatworks in South Australia burnt down a couple of years ago. So it's certainly limited the kill space in South Australia for South Australian and and Alice Springs, really, beef. How have you found it during COVID? I know there's been a lot of disruptions to meatworks on the East Coast. Has that impacted you? Uh, Not a great deal. And last year we were coming out of a pretty ordinary run of dry season, so we didn't really have any kill cattle to sell. So ourselves personally didn't really notice the impact, no. I want to talk about breeding and mating cattle down here. I suppose, well, I mean, everything that we're going to talk about in the sections of livestock, country, people, infrastructure, it's all very interrelated and it is hard to tease them apart. But down here, you don't really have a defined season, as you indicated earlier. So how does that impact your breeding and mating strategy? Yeah, so we leave our our bulls and rams in all year round um, to try and capture when we do get a rainfall event that you're at least going to get some some calves and lambs fall in a good period. But generally you'll find that there's there's a couple of main calvings uh, or lambings a year and and especially so after a good rain event, then, then you'll get a run of calves sort of 10 or 11 months after that once the cows pick up. Um, so, yeah, you, you're generally doing your two rounds a year and, and getting, and getting two, two sort of lots of calvings, spring and autumn roughly. So just coming back to this, um, so the reason that you've got year-round mating is because of these unreliable seasons. So in this part of the country, I suppose, is a green date not really a a thing that people use down here? No, certainly not. So we don't we don't get to April and say we haven't had a wet, we're going to have to do this strategy. Um, yeah, it's just as likely to rain here in May as it is in January. Um, so, so I suppose we, we've probably, and a lot of producers – um, in this area that have been around for a while have put a lot of money into into infrastructure so that you can manage the the lack of um, reliable rainfall so you can quickly take weaners off when it gets dry um, and and respond that way so you're not you can handle small mobs of cattle um, or sheep and without stressing them trying to get two bigger mobs together it's I suppose a probably a different way of doing it because of our big areas and low stocking rates it doesn't lend itself to to putting two or three thousand cattle together you you're more two or three hundred um at each water point and then moving on quickly to the next one so it's it's probably a more agile way of doing it 
I know from my time in like the ag department and even within private industry, there is a big push to get people to adopt it, you know, when, where it is applicable, really a green date or they are also called decision dates or key dates. When you don't have this, you know, reliable to find season down here, you don't have a green date. How do you make your decisions about when it's time to start destocking or, or, you know, how do you, when it's so, um, you just can't predict anything down here. Yeah, and I, I mean, even even people who've been doing it for a long time can get caught sometimes. But um, generally, you you keep a close eye on your on your condition of your livestock, condition of your country. Um, if you, if you're going into summer and you've had no rain, your cattle are your cattle are sort of down and and you're starting to run out of dam water. Well, then yeah, you'll hook in and and pull out a, a lot of weaners. Um, Cows and like young cows and calves, and just try and ease the load going into summer. Um, however, the yeah, and going into winter obviously gives you a bit more flexibility. Like we we get quite cool cool nights and cool days down here, so cattle can get out further, walk further from from waters. They'll hang on better, so it gives you an extra month's grace. Um, but a lot of this country is is relying on surface water, so. You, Sometimes the decision's made for you. Your surface water dries up, so you need to make a move. How much of your places is surface water versus bores? So just on Billicalina, for example, it's 5,000 square k's. I've got about 3,000 square k's where I've got no underground water at all or no no usable underground water. Um, so there's a few pipelines running into that from different directions, so that's all, all relying on, on dams. Do the cattle water directly from the dams, or do you have like a tur- like? Is it kind of like a turkey's nest, or running off something else? And yeah, so a bit of both. They they used to all, all water off the off the dams, and in recent times, we've sort of gone gone to um, fencing dams and and setting them up with solar pumps and tanks and troughs just to um, uh, improve the water quality for the last like, especially when you get down to your last couple of meters of water in your dam, um, and obviously to prevent issues with bogging. What about other surface water? Do you have any creeks or major river systems or water systems that flow through here? We have a few um, drainage lines, no no big permanent water holes. Uh, our longest one probably lasts sort of six months, I suppose. Um, but we do have some mound springs, which are pretty unique, um, on the edge of the Artesian Basin, which... Um, yeah, their water quality varies a hell of a lot, and some of them, some of them run these sort of just stock water. So we've got those um, and a few flowing bores, and then the rest are subartesian. Can you trap cattle if you don't have a lot of this surface water? Then, or is, is trapping something that happens down in South Australia? Uh, it certainly is in some areas, especially especially the heavier vegetated areas, um, and in the sandier country where you don't have a lot of surface water, but. On a property like this one here, if we get 10 mils of rain, it would be a waste of time trapping. Water lays for weeks. And so, so yeah, we haven't really gone down the trapping path a lot simply for that reason. There'd be a, a lot of the times when it would be would be a waste of time. I suppose we should talk about country type. Um, I've never really been down to South Australia before. I learnt a new word this week, gibber plains, or gibber, gibber flat, sorry, yep. which um, I've apparently been travelling across for most of my life, but, yeah, I only just learnt what they're called. So what is, and I guess your country does change between Billicalina and your, your southern properties. So tell me about country type. Yeah, so um, they've all three have got a, a variation of stony tableland or gibber tableland, um, sand hills and swamps between the sand hills. Um, some countries got some hills, some quite steep hills. Um, but it's yeah, this is pretty unique in that that there's quite a few different land types on each property, which um, does help a lot with your rainfall. Um, so in in winter time, your sand hill country will grow a lot of herbage and will will really kick on. Whereas your summertime, your your stony country and your drainage lines are, are um, will respond better. And so, what are they responding with? Is that like a lot of annuals then, or? Uh, yep. So your stony country is obviously your, your Mitchell grasses and Flinders grass and Button grass and and the creek feed. Um, and then your your um, your winter feed is there's a plant called Paracelia that grows down here, um, 
which is a succulent. Um, cattle can go out on that and live for months on end without drinking. Um, so that grows grows in the sand hills and along with clovers and swamps. What about the sheep? So do the sheep and cattle, are they grazing the same thing or do they complement each other? Yeah, they they do like they'll they'll go for the they'll go for the lollies in the jar first before they gotta eat the wheat mix. Um so yeah, they'll they'll will eat the clover and, and the and the the high nutrition stuff first. But sheep will certainly do better on blue bush, salt bush than what cattle do. Um and so I suppose in this country our our backup or our haystack as such is our blue bush and salt bush. We don't have Big stands of mulga um, or um, or timber as as a reliable backup in a dry time. So we've really got to monitor um, our um, our bush, which is a yeah a perennial plant. Um, some of it's yeah decades old, so it's very valuable to us. You, and then to a lesser extent, the Mitchell grass. Um, yeah, once once they've eaten eaten that down, you know it's time to move on. What sort of rangeland monitoring activities do you undertake down here? So um, the pastoral board in, in South Australia um, through their pastoral unit do inspections on properties and these involve doing transects, um, monitor, uh, measuring the vegetation in their transects and also doing photo points. So every 14 years there's an assessment done on each pastoral lease in South Australia. And do you so you just get a report from that, or how does that and how does that impact what you're doing management wise? Yeah, so you get a report, um, and if things have been mismanaged or through some seasonal event like a hailstorm or a dust storm or something, um, you may get a priority paddock or a priority water, which then will come with a with a list of management um, restrictions on how many livestock or if any at all that you can run on those areas till they recover. So, so generally, yeah, you'll you'll depending on your report. If your report's all good, well, then you obviously you've obviously been on the right track, and so your management won't have to change too much. I've got to be honest; I'm flying like completely blind in this part of the world. You know, a lot of my questions I can kind of anticipate some of the answers for you know up north, but down here, I'm not really sure what how it all works. So, I hope this isn't sounding too silly. But like, what about spelling? You know, you, do you, can you spell country down here? Do you need to spell country? Certainly we do, yes. So we do a lot of, um, especially with our sheep operations, we do a lot of um, turning waters off and sometimes for a year or two at a time um, if an area needs a spell or um, and also with our, with our cattle places or cattle areas, if there's, if there's a good season, we'll turn all our bores and troughs, all our troughs off, shut our dams up that are fenced and, um, yeah, spell them until they're needed. So cattle, cattle's definitely my ballpark, not sheep. But what I do know of sheep from the rangelands in Western Australia is there's a lot of significant historical damage um, to the rangelands. Like the degradation is just unbelievable in some places. And, and a lot of people blame well, obviously the sheep from back in the day and whether or not there was too many and the fact that they eat closer to the ground, like, you know, they, they bite closer and more of the plant. How do you – obviously – stocking rate has a lot to do with that but is there anything you have to do now running sheep on pastoral country in 2021 to try and make sure that we are not doing the same damage that we did 100 years ago is it just stocking rate or is there anything else you have to do oh it's it's stocking rate but it's water placement is just as important um so we've gone we bought a, a place that was running or two properties that ran merinos and and they they were managed in their certain style, fenced up into smaller areas with set stocking rates put in each paddock year after year. Often if the water was on the bottom end, only a third of that paddock would be utilised. So we've changed changed a lot of the waters around, pulled up old fences, and especially with our door operation, we've usually incorporate three or four waters into one one bigger paddock and then turn the waters off so that we can rotate the sheep around those waters. It's sort of a, like a cell grazing type setup, but not not very well refined. Do you find you have to spell the country with sheep more often than cattle because of like is is it true or is it like a bit of a wives' tale that they're eating the plants like they're grazing the plants harder and closer to the, to the uh, sheep? Sheep are a tougher animal than cattle. Um, that that's for certain. So 
if you really want to kill your country, you, your cattle will die before your sheep will. And especially with dorpers, they don't have to grow wool, so they're not losing not losing energy into doing that. All they've got to do is keep themselves and their lambs alive. So so you will, yeah, you can certainly flog, flog country if you, um, if you don't manage it. Um, but, have, yeah, having said that, there's country can just as well support cattle or sheep um, if they're managed correctly. Um, I suppose getting and getting back to your early question about about um, stocking rates, it's most of the South Australian rangelands have been fairly well policed by the pastoral pastoral board um, model in years gone by. So there's not huge areas of, of major degradation um, simply because um, South Australia's had quite res- quite restrictive, no, not restrictive, quite um, low stocking rates. Um, for a long period of time, which is which has certainly helped a lot of country. Yeah, and I mean, I probably should get this verified. It's just been you know anecdotal, you know anecdotes, I guess, from many people. But back in the day, you used to have minimum stocking numbers in WA for your sheep. Like you had to run at least this many. Whereas these days, now it's like this is your maximum. Do not go over this. So I think that's where a lot of people kind of look to when they see the historical damage. And I guess also the rangelands, you know, when, when European settlers came to Australia, it's very different country to what you have in Europe and it's a lot more fragile and just completely different climate. And it obviously took time to be able to read and see what was happening over the long term. But it certainly sounds like you guys have got, um, good stuff happening over here. What about, I'm sure, you know, some degradation is, or whether it's through, whether it's man-made or you've just got environmental erosion or whatnot, you know, anything that's happening, uh, is there anything that you've had to do like some, like any interventions for, whether it's like fencing off um, waterways or doing like woe boys or water ponding, like any kind of uh, interventions you've had to do in the landscape? Yeah. So we've been part of a, of a group of pastoralists in this area that that um, got pretty interested in soil conservation. Um, a lot of us had really serious issues with rabbits, um, very high rabbit numbers in our, especially in our sandy country, which wreaked havoc for a long time till pretty much till Khaleesi virus came along in its couple of different forms, and that's the results of that's been amazing. Um, but I suppose in, in getting back to the soil soil. Um, Rehab. So we've yeah we've done a lot of work with with woo boys. We've we've fenced off fragile areas. We've um, fenced off areas like environmental offset areas. Um, a group of us went on a on a study trip to Namibia and South Africa to see how they do it over there, uh, which was yeah it was a great eye opener with what you can do with fairly limited resources. Um, and so, yeah, we've been able to implement some of those strategies back here. So what did you actually see over in Africa, can I ask? Yeah, so that a lot of their stuff, like it's as simple as, as cattle pads leading into water. Um, if you're sitting along on your horse or your bike, um, bringing a mob of cattle in and, and there's a there's a pad that's that's not just two inches deep, it might be six inches deep, well, you go and put a few rocks in that pad, make the cattle get off it and walk around Um just things, just little things like that, so they spread the spread their um, over a wider area. Um, scrub uh, scrub filters in gullies, so you might have some some dead timber that um, you can easily put in a gully just to slow it down. Um, and then there's there's more obviously some more um, um, modern techniques that we use here with with earth moving gear and and um, Dozers and loaders, and, um, and we like we tried doing it here probably the last thirty years, but we some of our techniques weren't really correct, and and they kept getting washed away. And we've been able to work out now what we were doing wrong and how to fix that. And you were talking about the rabbits just before, so let's talk about your feral pests. What what kind of feral pests do you have in this part of the world, um, and what sort of what's the impact of them? Yeah, so rabbits certainly have been. Number one enemy for a long time. Um, they rocked up here in the 1950s. Um, our family, our family's been in this area since oh, the, around the turn of the century. Um, and yeah, the biggest impact by far that um, we saw was rabbits. There was there was plagues in the 50s where they were that high that 
or they were that thick that when they hit the dog fence, they were running over top of each other and jumping over the fence, sort of a five foot six fence over the other side. Um, so yeah, and then then obviously some of the bigger bigger properties have issues with um, camels and horses and donkeys, but to by far and away most places now have got them well under control uh, in South Australia. So rabbits isn't something I've actually ever come across before. Like, I mean, I've seen it. I'm not going to lie. There was an episode of McLeod's Daughters where they had a <laughs> rabbit plague. <laughs> and that is actually how I knew <laughs> to ask earlier, like, oh, did you rip the paddock? Because Claire ripped the paddock. <laughs> um, I actually learned a lot from that show, guys. So what, you know, I guess up, up north, it's a lot of, you know, pigs, donkeys, horses, all that, you know, camels. Um, some places will count buffalo, you know. But what do you, what do, you do to... Well, obviously, I kind of just gave it away a bit, but can you? What are the rules with getting rid of? Like you said, there was a virus that you put out because wasn't there what something like years ago, like the myxomatosis? Yeah, that so that, yep. So that was that was put out um, after the like the plagues got really bad in the fifties. So myxo was introduced, which had a had a big effect. Certainly knocked them down. We didn't get the huge plagues anymore, but then gradually that wore off, and and rabbits got more and more resistance to it. So then Khaleesi virus came out. It had initially escaped off a um, an island where they were testing it in South Australia and had a pretty dramatic effect. And then since then there's been a couple of more strains that they've introduced successfully. Um, but in terms of controlling it, like in, in big areas that we've got here, it's extremely hard to control rabbits. So we've ripped most of our holding paddocks two or three times in the last 50 years Um and that's that's extremely labour intensive. You've got to have someone. If you miss one warren in a square kilometre, that's got fifty rabbits in it. You might as well have tipped all that diesel down the drain. So, you've got to really, really be thorough and be thorough with your ripping techniques. And it, and it certainly does help. Yeah, that's that's what I want to know. You know, it's one thing if you've got a farm that's maybe a couple hundred acres or a couple thousand acres, but you've got five thousand square k's here. Do the rabbits, does that mean like are the rabbits kind of spread all over or do they segregate in kind of particular areas? You know, how do you know? Obviously, you can kind of see some warrens, but how do you know that you've just done some here but you've totally missed? Yeah, so I suppose you you target your high use areas and your highest value areas first that you can make an impact. Um, So, yeah, your holding paddocks um, and and areas like that. Um, Further than that, well, it's how long the piece of string is, how long your budget is, you you can rip to your heart's content. Um, but but now that Khaleesi's come along, it um, yeah you can go you can go kilometres now without seeing any trace of a rabbit. But generally, they like the sand hills and the sandier country um, better. I'm pretty sure there's I'm pretty sure there's an R and B singer that's come out in the last few years, and I'm that and her her name is Khaleesi. I'm I want to check the spelling on this. We need to go check. I'm pretty sure there is some celebrity <laughs> out there with that name, which is low key hilarious. Now this I guess this also brings us back to the dog fence, which uh, obviously probably everybody's heard of the rabbit fence. Um, to, I'm not going to lie, my the extent of the rabbit fence or rabbit proof fence that I know of is. Um, seen the trailer for the movie Rabbit Proof Fence. I haven't yes. even actually seen the movie. I feel like I might have heard about a dog fence at some point. Maybe somebody wrote a blog for us. I'm not really sure. Do they have a dog fence in Queensland? Yeah, so it's okay. the same dog fence. Oh, well, there you go. Yep. Um, God. It's all right. I'm happy to take one for the team and ask all the stupid <laughs> questions and be the sacrificial lamb, which is ironic because we're on a sheep place. Well, next door to sheep place. But um, I, what does the dog fence do for maybe people that I mean I don't I think there's maybe some in WA or they're pushing for some I have heard people say that they want dog fencing but anyway yeah talk me through it and yeah so without the dog fence there is no sheep industry um, in the certainly in the pastoral areas in South Australia um, it's as simple as that so so the dog the dog fence was originally it wasn't someone didn't set out and draw a line on the map and say we're going to build a dog fence um, as each lease was developed through the 1890s onwards in this area, there was quite often a netting fence put up. You had, back then you had to spend a certain amount on your lease to keep your lease um, in infrastructure. So they built netting fences so that they could run sheep without the use of shepherds looking after them every night. And then once once this had happened, then they decided that they would um, get, a more, get a more thorough system. So, so a dog fence was... Um, 
And they basically, yeah, they linked up all the all the outer sort of areas where they've worked out where sheep weren't going to run and cattle were. Um, and it starts over in the Great Australian Bight and then stretches all the way through to near Toowoomba. So it kind of goes up through, kind of up on an angle, does it? Yeah, or? so it goes, it, it, you look at it on a map and it does some crazy right angles and bends through basically straight across the middle of South Australia. It's the New South Wales border, goes up to the Queensland corner, runs along the Queensland-New South Wales border f- for a thousand-odd k's, I suppose, and then weaves its way through to the, to where it peters out in the in the um, higher populated areas. So how does that stop dogs? Like if you've got dogs in southern New South Wales or do they have a dog problem they're like just coming straight across? Or Well, they, they have a, a dog problem in, in the national parks with wild dogs. Um um, but once they get out into areas where they're more easily managed, well, then they get cleaned up. So, so, and then there's also a lot of exclusion fencing being done too in Queensland. So, so that areas that were previously outside the dog fence but did run sheep, um, a lot of them went out of sheep when the wool price collapsed, and now the sheep are a, are a better commodity where there's a lot of exclusion fence going on. But certainly back in in South Australia, the dog fence is is critical and. Um, at the moment, there's a there's a quite a big funding injection being put into upgrading some of it, which is over a hundred years old now. Who is responsible? Like, who's is this a something managed by the government or an industry body? Do your levies pay for this? Yeah, so a bit of a bit of the, all of the above. There's a dog fence board, which has got elected members on there, which collects levies from um, people adjoining the fence on the outside, and then all people who. All properties who run sheep inside the fence um, pay a levy in South Australia, and then there's also some industry money as well. So this is an additional levy to what you what MLA gets when you sell your livestock. Yes, it is. Yep. But obviously, very worthwhile. Like something that you're a cost that you have to absorb because without it, you probably don't have much of a product to. No, and. and and there's there was there's been a big issue in the last probably five years with a lot of dogs inside the fence and a lot of them breeding inside the fence in South Australia and it, and it looked pretty serious really for for areas running running sheep um, within a couple of hundred k's of the fence. Thankfully, um, through industry and primary industries, we've managed to put some some um, pretty experienced trappers into the program and a lot more baiting and dog control and. They seem to have got those numbers in check now. Um, so hopefully, with this dog dog fence upgrade, and then continued um, work on the inside of the fence to keep the ones that are that are inside already as low as possible, we can continue to have a successful sheep industry going forward. I know dogs. Well, any any feral pest is a very contentious issue. You know, depending on who you talk to, with dogs, obviously, you keep the dogs out. Um, you get to keep your livestock, but then there's flow-on effects with your kind of, you know, chain of what's eating what. And then there are people of the opinion that you need some number of dogs, you know, to keep other, you know, um, marsupials and, and other little mammals in check. What what impact? So if you've got if you're basically removing a predator, but there are still some around. Is it is it, have, has that had a massive impact on like uh, your kangaroos, your wallabies? Um, what about even feral cats? Is that an issue out here? Yeah, we get a lot of cats in this area, um, but they they don't eat like sheep or lambs. No, they Is don't. It just like it's just more like wildlife that but they decimate wildlife. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, I mean, think the kangaroo population is a lot higher inside the fence than out. Um, there's no doubt about that. It's a, it's artificially high inside. Um, it's it's a big problem in some areas um, because of the man-made waters. Um, but th- I mean, it depends. It depends where you rule the line under when dogs came to Australia, like what was here before they turned up ten thousand years ago. So, they while they may have been here pre-European, there's a fair bit of conjecture about just how native an animal they are. Yeah, it's kind of like chicken and egg, and yep. we can go on forever. And I, I just, I know it can really get some people fired up. We've had, we've got some pastoralists in WA that have. Uh, I think oh, I can't remember what they do. They wrote some stories for us, and they don't. They've kind of let dogs come back in a bit 
but I mean, a lot of that sheep country is turned to cattle country now yep. because they found that that really kept the ruse down, which really helped them regenerate their landscape. But then obviously all their neighbours are not super happy about that. And obviously it, it has different impacts depending on the operation and where you are and everyone has different opinions, which is the beauty of living in a free country. So Yeah, I mean, in South Australia you're required by law to control dogs inside the dog fence. So you can't knowingly let dogs go, um, whether they're a dingo or a wild dog or a feral dog. Um, south of the fence. How does that work? What What is a, a fox classified as? A fox. <laughs> no, but like, sorry. But so, like, just do foxes eat things, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they eat lambs and, um, and yeah, so foxes are just vermin. Okay. Same as a feral cat. Okay. So, <laughs> so they're fair game for, for, any, for anyone. I don't think anyone could argue that a fox should be left there. Oh, they're kind of cute. Um, I love it. I'm in England, really – In England, maybe. I'm really taking one for the team here. If anybody – I feel like I need to justify. I drove like a couple hundred Ks today. I don't know. It's been a big day, guys. It's been a day. Anyway, I'm, I'm happy to ask the questions if it – yeah. So let's just jump back to livestock a little bit before we'll finish up with some infrastructure questions. So coming back to your cattle and sheep, what's your – culling what are you culling for when um how often uh what are you, yeah what are you looking for yeah so we, i suppose with our with our cattle operation um cows generally go at 10 year old um, sometimes sooner and then obviously all throughout their life if there's a any sort of temperament issue they're on the truck and bulls generally at seven so yeah and then with the sheep we our, our ewes go at that's, we start culling our ewes at six year old and, and rams usually at about five. So coming to the cattle, what is – I'm always interested as to why people obviously do what they do and I I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong. It really op- depends on your operation and or so many factors, but I know there's some people that cull religiously eight, nine, ten, twelve. Some people are like, well, if she's 15 and still having a calf every year, I'm going to keep her around or whatever. How do you come to that age and – yeah, and, and why, I suppose? Yeah, I suppose, yeah, that's a good question, why you cull at 10 and not 9 or 11. Um, it probably comes to just trying to keep your numbers in check. Um, we we don't have a high problem with mortality in this area and, and we have quite high fertility with British bred cattle. Um, so, yeah, you if if you let your herd spin out to, to um, sort of 12 and 14-year-old cows and then it gets dry, well, then you, you still want to have a saleable article when it does get dry um so yeah that's probably why we try and keep our breeder herd relatively young yeah okay and so when you're selling them at what aging them out of the herd at 10 are they going direct to slaughter or do other people take them on as um breeder cattle do you ever sell cows with calves or or do people want them um preg tested in calf yeah so all three really um we we especially when it starts to get dry we sell a lot of cows and calves um and and then yeah, you hope that at ten year old there's still a, a sound cow that's got plenty of meat if it's a good season, so you'll get a good price um, at the meat works for her. Um, yeah, the, our cattle have all got to travel a fair distance, so we don't want we don't want cattle to start to go in the joints um, that are not going to be able to travel. Yeah, okay. So that just sounds like a, a pretty good well. I know, so I'm still wrapping my head around down here, Hal. It's, there seems to be a lot more flexibility in the operations down here, being able to turn off kind of at any age, any time of year. Um, we're just, just having that, that flexibility of a, of a British breed in the domestic market. Um, and that you've got, and I guess also by culling early and doing that routinely is that if you do hit dry times, you know, you're, they're not. They're going to be in, well, not necessarily in better condition, but obviously, like if you've got a ten-year-old with a calf or a fifteen-year-old with your calf, you know your ten-year-old is probably going to be managing a bit, and it's going to better. be worth more money. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So yeah, um, it's going to be a lot easier sell a sell a run of cows if if it gets dry. Sort of your your eights, nines, tens than it is your eleven, twelves, thirteens. Yep. To someone. Do you preg test down here? We do. Yes. So we've got a um a a um ultrasound preg testing machine um, that we use. Do you do that yourself? Yes. Yep. Yep. And do you preg test, um, like are you preg testing everything? Are you just preg testing dry cattle? What do you, what's kind of, or is it in first round, second round, you know, no, time we certainly, of year? we certainly don't have a, have a um, sort of a system in place um, as like a strict system. So it's more so if you've got a, 
if you've got a good season and you've got a mob of dry cows, well then yeah, you might say you might run them through and preg test those, or if it's if it's dry. Um, but no, we don't we don't as a rule preg test everything, and we do we do cut them a bit of grace. Like if you've just had a really dry period, like a couple of years of drought, and and you know that after a, a good rain you're going to get a big flush of calves. Well, it's no point. It's no point um, culling all your cows six months after the rain because they're not in because they're not about to calf. Yes. So yeah, you you've got to be pretty flexible, which is which is you'll hear that word again and again, but that's what it is in this area. No, and it, and it's a whole different world down here from you know at least where I've been up in the Kimberley Pilbara territory wherever it's very different um so when you're saying if you're having a, a good season and you've got some dry cows you want to preg test are you wanting to sell the empties or sell the early in calf the late in calf what would you be wanting to sell in that good season yeah so probably the empties and the early in calf like if the, if they're fat and dry and you've had a good season for 12 months there's no reason why they shouldn't oh, have okay sorry so you mean like i previously had a good season yeah, yeah i'm with you yep, yep. and what about i got i suppose this is coming back to your your incredibly unreliable rainfall, not knowing when your season's going to come. If you're preg testing, do you do you ever? So you're just preg testing on that thing. I know people up north because you've got these more defined. You can preg test and say, and then obviously, kind of you know, sort of do some fetal aging and go, oh well, they're going to calve here. Well, she's going to she's going to carve out a season. I can either manage her for that, or I can get rid of her, or, or you know, you can kind of take that into account. Do you do any of that, or is it just? Uh, we have had that. Like, um, example was a couple of years ago. We sent quite a few cattle on the road in Queensland, and obviously we didn't want them to carve on the driving trip. So, yeah, we we preg tested all those and um, and just sent the early in calfers on that. Um, and you also might preg test them to, if you've got to sell cattle to line them up as a as a um, a line of of cows that might be six months plus. Um, to yeah, to try and get a better a better result rather than just just a mixed age mob. It's such a handy tool. Do you um, have you? How long have you been using the the um, what do you, the ultrasound? Uh, yeah, it's called an ultrasound. Um, and before that, were you doing like the rectal palpation or? Oh, uh, limited. Um, before that, so yeah, we we had a um, we had a trainer come to this area and a couple of sport machines and and um, I wouldn't say that I'm that I'm an expert by any means, but I yeah, it's a it's quite a useful tool, especially um, in this area where you where you might only have a hundred cows in a yard, and and you can't afford to get someone to come and do them um, in in like small numbers at each yard. So you can do ten cows at each yard, and and you're only carting away the ones you need to cart away. So you're not not bringing a whole lot back to a central set of yards, and then get getting someone in to come and preg test them. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so obviously speaking of our cattle being pregnant, um, oh, well, actually, and also with your culling, I, I suppose, is spaying something that people do down here or that you, that you do? No, no, not as a rule down here generally. It's, um, um, I suppose if you're culling that young, you probably don't need to. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot more marketing options here. So generally you don't need to spay to try and get body weight on your, on your livestock, um, at the next wet season. Um, to be able to sell them, so yeah, we've we've got we've got options like putting females into feedlots or or selling them selling them to backgrounders or or um, yeah breeders to someone. Or- I I I know it's not, but it again the word flexible. But I was like, oh, it almost just feels a bit easier down here. I know it's not easier. Nobody, please crucify me for saying that because as soon as I thought that word, I also heard 150 mils of rainfall, and I was like, okay, no. Um, but just yeah, the flexibility is is something that is really I'm really enjoying like getting my head around down here. So with our cattle down here, what is your typical weaning? Um, protocol and and weaning weight is what i really want to know like what is a normal weaning weight down well here? once again this is going to make you um no. shudder a bit because a lot of operators in this area don't wean as a rule in a in a reasonable year or a good year um if you've got if you've had 200 mils of rain here and and um with british bread cattle they'll get back into calf no problem at all even with a weaner on them so often um, we'll be turning off like four four hundred and fifty kilo milk tea oh, steers, God. and they've they've only been off their mother for a couple of months. Oh, oh dear lord! <laughs> and, this is like another planet. <laughs> well, it's I suppose it's a bit more of a, a 
a lot of this area because it's big areas and not many stock you you're running a, a more natural environment so you'll often have your your stock in family groups um and they'll, they'll certainly do better in good seasons so in dry years yeah certainly we do wean and we'll we'll wean hard down low um send them down to our southern property and put them on pellets and so what do you count as weaning hard down here oh it's three months old and like what kind of weight are we talking uh, 100 kilos Okay, well, that's fair enough, yeah. Um, I'm just thinking, like, okay, so, yeah, so they can – it's just amazing that they can, yeah, wean themselves and be getting back in calf and just – sorry, I'm just like, that's – Yeah, no, that's like – You can a, tell I've come from somewhere else. For your average short-horn Angus or Hereford um, or derivatives of them, yeah, that's that's not an issue at all. Um, a lot of people don't don't um, don't wean as a rule and put all the weaners in a certain area. It's – it's um, it's entirely season dependent whether you do it or not. It's absolutely insane. Uh, when you do, and so let's just jump back to what you said. You sometimes you do have to do a, a harder wean depending on the season, um, and you send them down south. So, do, would you say do most? I know, like in the Pilbara um, and like like southern WA rangelands, a lot of people have a not everyone, but uh, certainly a number of them have backgrounding properties down kind of north of Perth or south of Perth to kind of send their cattle to. Is that a common thing with the pastoral, obviously I can't, you you can't speak on behalf of everyone, but is that something you know that many people kind of have as a setup? Yeah, it certainly is. Yes. And, um, what you won't find here is, is hardly any properties I know of will wean and then feed on property, um, when it gets dry up here. So pretty much, pretty much, uh, most pastoral leases in South Australia will, will, um, will wean and, and send their stock elsewhere, send, send their weaners to where the feed is rather than bringing the feed to the stock. Do they ever bring them back later on then? Oh, for sure. Them? That's the aim. Yeah. 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 Especially your heifers. So you might get your weaner steers up to a up to a, um, a saleable weight where you can sell them. Um, but, yeah, your heifers are your, obviously your future and, and if you've got – if you've got good genetics, well, they're the ones you're trying to save. Actually, I just had a thought. So you're, I suppose, again, it, it is a whole different ball game because we've got different cattle, different fertility, um, different conditions down here. But so um, here you pretty much run, like you said, they run in family groups and they're kind of in kind of spaced around waters because you don't really have, aside from your holding paddocks, you don't have internal fencing and paddocks, that sort of a setup. So obviously you're not segregating your first calf heifers to manage them differently. But I guess, no. again, if you with your breeds and your country type, you don't really need to be managing them differently. Is that? Well, no, you don't. Not, not especially. Um, although when it, yeah, as, as I said, if it stops raining and gets dry, well, then you'll pull out, you'll see those, those springing first calves and you'll pull them off and, and usually you'll have some country spilled that you can stick them on, um, some waters that you've been saving or had turned off. Um, but, yeah, uh, obviously bull selection comes back to low low birth weight bulls that, that heifers can handle. So some places will put all their heifers into a paddock and then um, and do it that way, but they're quite often weaning them as uh, – not weaning, uh, taking them out as yearlings rather than weaners. Yeah, okay. And so do you – when you're – those times where you do grab your heifers and have to pop them somewhere else just to give them that bit of extra TLC, do you find that they've got quite strong homing beacons and they want to come back to where they've come from or will they settle into that new country? Yeah, yeah, some do. But um, generally if you've got a decent patch of feed, you're putting them on and you tail them around and, and get them settled in, they'll stay there, yeah. They'll stick their head down yep. and their yep. head, sorry, their head down and um, stay there. All right. So we'll just talk a bit about infrastructure and then I'll let you have your dinner. Um so as we just covered, you've kind of got mainly a boundary fence, a couple of holding paddocks and no internal fencing. What's your line of thinking behind that? Yeah, well, I suppose it's a, it's a, it's a bit unique in some ways, but we've spent a lot of money on, on, um, on yards and, and water yards over the, over the years. And, um, I think we've got 26 sets of drafting yards here on Billicalina. Um, so generally there's, there's nowhere here that we can't start mustering in the morning and be in a trucking yard that afternoon. Um, so basically it eliminates the need for walking two or three days or bigger mobs to get to a yard. You can go there quickly, pull wieners off, pull skinny cows and calves off if you need to. Um, yeah, it's, and it, and it allows the cattle in this area with their, with our lane rainfall. If you get a good storm somewhere, you haven't got them trapped behind a fence that you've then got to go and, um, muster that paddock, push them out. The cattle generally, 
sort themselves out and then you'll find that they'll come back to their waters that they've been living at uh, pretty much by themselves. Yeah. No, I, I know you said like it's a, a, a unique um, thing. And, and I should add that if you could see a picture, we're very open country. Yeah, which yeah. So we're, we're not thick scrub where – or, or hard hard terrain to muster or big gorges or rivers and that sort of thing. So it's 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 pretty unique like that 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 we can get very clean musters quite easily just just because of our our country. Well, the more I get around, the more I think I think I was talking to Jill today. I think this is about station eighty five or eighty six I visited. The more I think when I first started off, the first place had no internal fences, and then I would see the more developed places. But I really think it really depends on your operation, where you are. Yeah, obviously, it's capital. It's a massive ex- expense. So, but then you, and your neighbours, what's around you. But if you, I just, I don't think you have to have something just because it's kind of like expected or lots of other people have it. Like if you've got it working for you, then I think that's the main thing. Like it's not like you've got, I don't know, you know, like I don't think everyone has to have a million. Pa- I know obviously we've got the other extreme where you've got some of those highly developed places in Queensland or in the territory where they've put in bucket loads of fencing and waters mm. and really kind of, you know, got like your cell grazing, but different country, different cattle. Dif- different country, different rainfall. And, and certainly if, yeah, if we had 50 inches a year here, we'd be completely different to this. So it's um is it, it is what it is um so yeah I mean and we've gone down the path of, of solars replaced all our windmills and um just yeah ease of management I suppose is is the is the key to it nowadays lower staff numbers so you try and do things as as um as easily and cost effective as you can well yeah I mean and if you can if you can manage your country and your cattle effectively without having to put in all that extra stuff and maintain it then why wouldn't you like it's kind of a a no-brainer. It is just – it's – I still um, – yeah, driving around, I think, uh, some places near Udna in, in, last, in the last week and just seeing the size, like, of wieners that are on cows and the cows, like, the condition they're in. Because normally you see a cow in that kind of condition and you're like, oh, wow, she's looking good, and then you realise she's dry. Yeah. And, that, you know, that's generally – you know, and then I come down here and, like, she looks like that and then she's got this big, like, 200-kilo wiener on it. It's just – it's really interesting down here and I think – Obviously, when uh, I know we're completely guilty at Central Station, we focus so much on the north, and that I mean we did come about initially because of the live export ban, and we were very focused on the north. But um, certainly, growing into really covering all pastoral regions, that it's such a no. No one ever really talks about it down here. It's always like the top end, the Kimberley, and like you guys are just kind of like quietly down here, <laughs> like head down, bum up, just little secret screws. Oh, we do have plenty of weekends off. Don't worry about that. <laughs> But it's just like it's just like no one ever hears about you. Like, no, no, there's not a marketing plan for South Australia. <laughs> oh well, no, I suppose we yeah we don't run big numbers and um, yeah fly under the radar a bit. But um, you'll see there's a lot of properties around here that have been in in families for for um, three or four or five generations. So yeah, there's obviously there's obviously some money to be made in this country and a and a good future in it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure anybody from this area that's listening is like this girl is just. A goose, but I think that the the point of these episodes is that people not from this region will be you want the sticky beak as people from this region want the sticky beak of what other regions are doing. So um, we've covered your I've got oh, down here water. So you've got mostly you have to trap surface water um, or water from sky. Obviously, like so have your surface waters because you don't have usable. Um, water that you can drill for. You're fencing off your dams, which was music to my ears um, for for your water quality and your animal welfare. Um, and what about your technology? I know you guys are using telemetry. Is that on most of your water points? Or if you've got – I guess with your dams, do you, can you run multiple tanks off the same – like do you have a line, like a line? I know some people telemetry, they just put the, the unit on the very end of the line. Mm, so when you yeah. can read that tank, you know what the rest of them are doing? Yeah, so it the, yeah it's a bit of both. Um, some of our dams we've got pipelines on um, – and um, obviously we have them have them on those tanks, and we've generally got our telemetry on our furthest away waters um, to cut the cost of checking, obviously, and water runs. Um, dams dams are still a bit of a, a moving target. We we've been thinking long and hard about how we how we do dams. Short of, I mean, we can quite easily have it with our telemetry. We've got it's it's all through Wi-Fi, so we've got we've got instant full time um, camera footage. So we could certainly set that up on dams, but we haven't really found the need to as much yet. Um, 
we've we've put it on dams where we've where they're fenced in, in a trough, but on open dams that that are that are probably only say twelve month type dams that don't don't get boggy, um, and and that we haven't got to fencing yet. Well, then yeah, they're still they're still as as they've always been. Actually, I do have a question that I'm not sure whether or not how many people know about this, but Jill was telling me that at some of your telemetry points, you actually have Wi-Fi. Yeah, so the whole system's a Wi-Fi setup. Yep. Um, but Wi-Fi that you can like log onto on your phone. Yeah. So, so there's two ways of doing. It. You can have an internal Wi-Fi that you can just use on property, but then with ours, we're we're um, managed to to bounce off one of the mines that's about eighty k's away, and so we can then get to the outside world through that. So, at each of our tanks, um, yeah, we can we can send use Wi-Fi calling or send send uh, messages. Um, and so it's good for for not only today I I walked over one of our tanks and ordered a truck um, with my mobile. So in the old days it would have been a sat phone or a HF radio um, to do that. Um, but then it's also good as um, if if your staff are travelling around to the waters doing water runs and there's something that's an issue they can take a picture of it with their phone, send me the picture on Messenger and and uh, I can look at it straight away. Plus plus you can sit at the test cricket and check your waters. <laughs> So to finish off, I'd like to get your perspective on a few things. What is the biggest challenge that you face in your business? Well, I suppose um, excluding excluding the um, climate, which we can't um, easily modify ourselves here, um, I would say ongoing would be staffing issues would be the biggest biggest challenge, I suppose, um, and it's. It's easy to find like staff to do something day to day, but I, I suppose what I'm looking at is is the longer term industry wide staffing of of retention of retention of, of skilled young staff turning into middle manager like senior roles and then management roles is what I as I see as the biggest issue. What is something you would like to see brought into the industry? If you could be boss for a day, whether that's through government or MLA or whoever, like if you could implement something, what would it be? I'd like to see the working in the pastoral industry as a trade, as a as a qualification, the same as a plumber and electrician. So that if you if you leave this and go in, go somewhere else, you've got a transferable um, qualification, um, and so yeah, some more not some, a lot more um, resources put into training young people and and upskilling existing people in the pastoral industry. Absolutely. Just imagine if we did recognition of prior learning for so many units of competency, like so many people already could gain a lot. But, yeah, it's just not really treated as much of a trade, is it? No, that's right. It's sort of a job you do while you're still thinking about what you're going to do for your life. Yeah, you know, that's, that's actually the perfect way to put it. Okay, so that's something to be brought in. What is something that needs to be kind of booted out or or let go or left behind? I suppose, um, yeah, people treating, treating staff badly probably needs to be called out and, um, yeah, that, that needs to be eliminated out of the industry. Um, nowadays with social media, it's... It's so easy to paint a whole industry in a bad light through a couple of um, a couple of operators not doing the right thing. So, so I think they people who who clearly um, are in breach of of payment or conditions, um, yeah, that they need to be they need to be um, seriously looked at so that um, those who are trying to do the right thing um, can attract staff. And to finish up, what is something that is non-negotiable for you uh, in any facet of whether it's the business, the station, personal life? Um, certainly, sorry, I suppose there's a couple of things there. Business is is um, treating animals well, um, as well as you can. Um, that's, a, that's a non-negotiable. And to finish up, what are you most proud of in your enterprise? Uh, I reckon it's it's being able to grow our business um, from when I when I first first became involved with with management with myself and Jill um, and probably the the um, the livestock we've got that we've managed to 
to hang on to our our core genetics through the through some pretty challenging dry times um, in the last fifteen years. And and I suppose the other thing is if if I had to, to bring people here and show them something is is the work we've done with with rabbit control and soil erosion. Um, it's pretty important to us. And there you have it. That is our first cattle station classroom episode. It was also the first one we ever recorded. So, you know, each episode will change a little bit. But if you like what you heard and you want to hear more and have a real sticky beak into cattle stations around Australia, go and find the Cattle Station Classroom podcast and subscribe so you'll get notified when a new episode drops. And we'll see you back on the Central Station podcast next week. Oh, 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 oh,